I mean, I want people to understand that this was not the most sophisticated cyber attack we've ever seen by any means. Hmm. Um, in fact, many elements of it were quite simple. And so, but because of the vulnerability that it took advantage of, it turned out to be widespread. I'm not 100% sure why it affected more businesses than individuals. Um, and so that's something, you know, that we're gonna have to wait and see if there was some motive uh, that was different behind um, that kind of targeting. But mm -hmm. in many ways, it wasn't targeted at all because it was so widespread in the way and the number of computers infected and the number of countries that were impacted. everybody and welcome back to firewalls don't stop dragons we've got another great show for you we've got a wonderful interview coming up shortly with michael kaiser uh, he's the executive director of the national Cybersecurity alliance and he's got some great info for us uh, we kind of dig into the whole wanna cry virus thing and take it apart figure out what we learned what we should be doing going forward and talk a little bit about who might be to blame for all of this and there's actually a lot of options <laughs> a lot of options there and we will go through all of them uh, and he's got just some great advice for you and uh, looking forward to that interview. That'll be coming up here shortly. Uh, quick update on the WannaCry virus. Uh, looks like things are mostly tamped down, but there are a couple new developments that I'll bring you up to speed on real quick. And then and we'll discuss this more at length in the interview. Uh, WannaCry uh, is a virus that spread very quickly um, to 150, comp 150 countries and something like over 200,000 computers. And um, it spread on its own, which is why we call it a worm. Once you get one computer infected, it can spread across the network all by itself. But there was a kill switch built into it. And we don't know exactly why, of course, but there was uh, code in the virus that went looking for a domain on the web. And a domain is like Google.com or Yahoo.com, Netflix.com. Those are all domain names. Uh, when you're looking for uh, some service on the web or that you give it a domain name and that's where your browser takes you. It was looking for a specific domain name, which was not registered. Uh, and for some reason, if it was not registered, it then decided to propagate. And once someone figured that out, a security guy in the UK figured that out, well, he registered the domain. And now all of a sudden, the virus would come up, it would look at that domain and say, oh, it's there, and then stop. And so that one thing managed to stop the virus from spreading, uh, the, the initial version of that virus from spreading any further. And it was what we call a kill switch. Now, in the meantime, a couple things have happened. First of all, you, the hackers or copycats or the originals have re-released the virus without that kill switch in it. And nevertheless, it, it doesn't seem to have propagated much further, most likely because of the news. Everyone went out and patched their systems. Microsoft released patches not only for their supported systems. They took an unprecedented step of releasing patches for unsupported systems like Windows XP. And hopefully the wake-up call got most people out there and fixed their systems, got them all updated so that when the, the second round of WannaCry came around that didn't have the kill switch, uh, that it was stopped in its tracks. But it's interesting to note that the hackers are trying to shut down that domain name that was registered in hopes of getting one, the original WannaCry virus to start spreading again. Because if they can, if they can shut down that service and make it unreachable, uh, we call that a denial-of-service attack, a DOS attack, uh, it, if they can take that service down and, and make it unreachable, then all the viruses out there that were trying to l look for that domain and not spread if they see it will now no longer see it and start spreading again. 
Uh, I don't think those efforts have been successful so far, but very interesting to see this play out uh, and, and, and how this all works together. But anyway, we will talk uh, at great length about Wanna Cry and, and, and what to do about it and, and who's to blame and all that sort of good stuff when we talk to Michael Kaiser here shortly. Uh, one other little bit of computer security news I want to make sure I pass on because I don't think it got a lot of attention. Uh, it probably doesn't affect many of you, but I just want to make sure that if it does affect you, you know about it. Uh, if you've got an HP laptop um, and that laptop happens to have a Connexent HD audio driver in it, um, which I think is fairly common, actually, um, you need to listen up and check this out. Some of these HP laptops, in order for these sound, it's basically a sound card uh, in your computer, and, and to have those things work, they have to have driver software, which uh, tells the Windows operating system how to interoperate with this audio driver so that when you you know, hit the volume up, down, and mute, and all these kind of things that your audio driver does the right thing and, you know, turns the volume up on your speakers or your headset or whatever the case may be. Um, that's what the audio driver software does. And it turns out that for some reason, uh, this audio driver that comes pre-installed on these HP laptops had a built-in keylogger. <laughs> now, a keylogger basically records every keystroke you make. And in this case, it records the keystrokes just to a plain text file that's sitting on your hard drive somewhere. And while most of the times keyloggers are, are malicious, they're installed by viruses or um, malware to record the keystrokes and hoping, hope that they'll get your passwords or credentials, uh, credit card numbers, social security numbers, that kind of stuff, or whatever juicy info. Uh, Keyloggers are there, and sometimes you'll find these things on like public computers. Um, or like I said, if you got infected with a virus, sometimes what they'll do is they'll install a keylogger. And this keylogger, it, it recorded your keystrokes to a file, but my best guess at this point is that there was not there was no malicious intent here. It's probably just a debugging thing from the software engineer who forgot to turn it off because they do need to watch your keystrokes. There's special keys you can hit to turn your volume up and down or mute the, the audio card without hitting specialized buttons. So it's got to be watching what keys you're hitting so it knows that when you hit that special key combination uh, that it does whatever it does to the your audio. So my guess is that is that they were testing it and forgot to take that little feature out where <laughs> where it saves all your keystrokes to a file. So anyway, um, this was found by a cybersecurity firm in Switzerland called ModZero uh, back on April 28th. And uh, there's a link in the show notes you can go to on the webpage that will point you to this article. And just kind of scroll to the bottom. You don't need to read all the details. It's a little, it gets a little technical. But if you just scroll to the bottom, it'll tell you how to figure out whether you have this problem and how to fix it. Uh, HP has already come up with new drivers that you can download and install. And this page will help you figure that out. So not a big deal, it was a mistake, but you probably want to take, get this taken care of because since this, since this is now known, you know, if I was writing malware, then I would, you know, get on someone's system and say, hey, as long as you're there, see if this file is there because it might have some good info in it. So you still probably want to get this fixed. All right, so a little bit earlier, we were talking about domain names, and I explained that, you know, Google.com, Netflix.com, those are domain names. And of course, if you're a, if you own a small business, you already know what that is because you've got a website and you had to pay somebody, your registrar, uh, for your domain name and you got to, you know, you go in, you pay a certain amount each you know, at the beginning and they always give you a teaser deal to get you started. And then it's, you know, a certain amount every year, usually, you know, 12 to 15 bucks or whatever that you got to pay for each domain name you own. And I've got a few of these between me and my wife, we probably have over half dozen of them. And, uh, you know, so it starts to add up. And I, I remember when I first went to go, you know, register my, my first domain name, you know, you pay for the initial fee and then they're like, Oh, you want, do would you like some privacy with that? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'd like privacy with that. And, you know, I was kind of new to the whole thing. But the, the deal is when you sign up for a, for a web domain, 
you have to be put in this who is registry. Uh, and that who is registry has got, you know, personal information about you, including your email address and some other contact information. It's kind of mandatory to get your name. Uh, and of course, as soon as that's out there, then, then all these spammers and, and, and whatnot can, can query this information. And, and Lord knows I've gotten a ton of spam, uh, <laughs> based on this, uh, you know, and I kind of learned my lesson, uh, that I wanted this privacy. Well, the privacy costs an extra 10 bucks. Uh, and, you know, that may not sound a lot, but it's, you know, it's it's almost doubling the cost of the whole thing. So I started looking into somebody else that I could use for my registrar because I want the privacy, you know, and it, I found this company called Hover, Hover.com, and heard some really great things about this from, from a people I trust. And here's the thing. When you go with Hover.com, the privacy thing is thrown in. It's part of the, it's part of the initial cost. And it, if you add all that up, if you really care about privacy, which everybody on this podcast should, um, and everybody should, then it saves you a heck of a lot of money. So uh, I'm really psyched about this. I, um, I started working with them, and I thought, okay, let's let's test these guys out a little bit. So I sent them an email to their support line and asked them a bunch of technical questions. And lo and behold, within an hour, I get this beautifully detailed response answering all my questions very thoroughly. Very impressed. And then I thought, okay, well, here's the, here's the real test. Let's, let's call these guys. They've got phone support. Everybody hates phone support. You know, calling into these support lines is just, is just hair. You, you get put on all these holds and you have to punch in 50 different things to talk to a human. I called this line and the dude answered. <laughs> it's, there was no waiting. There was no BS. I just, I got the guy. It's like, it's like I called somebody I knew and the guy just answered. So it was just fantastic experience. These guys are really on the ball. I'm really looking forward to working with these guys. And, uh, uh if you go to hover.com slash firewalls right now, uh, they will give you 10% off your first order. That's hover.com slash firewalls. Uh, you can find the link, uh, with the podcast on the webpage, check that out. Uh, and remember the cool thing about these guys that we're, we're talking about is the, the privacy stuff, which you normally have to pay extra for, is all built in. And uh, they, these guys really care about that stuff. They're not going to upsell you on a bunch of other crap you don't need. Uh, these guys do domain names, and they do it very well, and that's what they stick to. So give these guys a look. Again, uh, hover.com slash firewalls. We are excited indeed to be celebrating our one-year anniversary here at America Out Loud. And... We could not have done it without you. Well, in short order, we've become one of the fastest-growing podcast and talk radio networks in the world. For all the latest news, entertainment, your blogging, and now web TV, as we celebrate our one-year anniversary here, and we'll see you back at AmericaOutloud.com. Well, I'm not sure why we take our health for granted, but I know that many of us do. Include me in that company. Recently, I had a couple of health scares that got my attention real quick. I started a new product called Healthy Cell. I took it for about three weeks, and man, I started to feel really good. I found myself sleeping better at night, had more energy in the day, and less stress and anxieties, and just feeling better overall. Well, with those kind of results, I knew I had to do something, so I reached to the company directly with a request to bring Healthy Cell back to America out loud. And here it is. Well, typically you'd pay $110 plus shipping and handling. Well, now you get it for just $79.99 for the monthly plan, plus 
free shipping. That's right. They'll pick up the shipping and you pay just $79.99. Use the code OUTLOUD on HealthyCell.com or just click the banner on the front page of AmericaOutloud.com. All right, and as promised, with me today is uh, Michael Kaiser, who is the uh, executive director at the National Cybersecurity Alliance, uh, which is the driving force behind a wonderful website you may have heard of called staysafeonline.org. Welcome, Michael. Thank you very much for talking with us today. Well, thanks for having me, and I appreciate having the opportunity to chat. Very welcome. And the NSA uh, has done many wonderful uh, things, a lot of great initiatives out there for keeping people and businesses safe in our ever-connected world. Uh, so if you would just, if, if you don't mind, start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and what the NCSA does. Yeah, well, I've been at the National Cybersecurity Alliance uh, since 2008, but we were actually founded in 2001, uh, right after the 9-11 attacks, by some very visionary people uh, in the industry who realized that if you think back to that attack a little bit, you remember that there was um, some uh, impacts on uh, the uh, the stock market, the transportation system in Lower Manhattan, the phone systems got jammed, and these were people who had already been thinking about cybersecurity and critical infrastructure, and they realized that in fact there wasn't anybody organization out there that was educating the general public about how to stay safe online, how to keep businesses safe online, uh, how to think about talking to young people about staying safe online. There had been some work on the online safety space for kids, but not from that security perspective, more from the safety perspective. And so they formed the organization, and these were companies like McAfee and Symantec and um, Microsoft and Computer Associates and AOL. Uh, and they knew right away they wanted to work with government, so they created it as a public-private partnership. Skip ahead a few years, they went to the Department of Homeland Security that was being stood up and got the responsibility for protecting .gov and .com, right, and .org and .edu. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, there's a .mil that takes care of all the big cyber, like I to say, cybersecurity with a capital C, right? <laughs> you, know? Yeah. Um, you know, the military and, and some of the, you know, larger um, government uh, more, uh, you know, requiring extra security operations um, and formed things like. National Cybersecurity Awareness Month, which we co-created and co-lead with DHS since 2004. Later, we created the Stop, Think, Connect campaign, took on Data Privacy Day, and and we have a lot of other initiatives. But that's really where we kind of, how we came to life. That's fantastic. I'm uh, really glad to know you guys are out there fighting the good fight because we we, we obviously need it. And, and that segues perfectly <laughs> into uh, what I would call the cyber elephant in the room, which is the WannaCry ransomware that uh, spread across the globe like, uh, globe like wildfire last week. Um, just uh, off the last numbers I saw, I think, said that the virus had hit over 200,000 computers in about 150 countries, uh, basically exploited vulnerabilities in older and or uh, unpatched Windows operating systems, and generally only affected business systems. So what can you tell us, what more can you tell us about this malware? Well, you know, maybe a little history on ransomware, it would be important for people to understand too. Yes. So let's start with that. You know, ransomware has been around uh, since, I believe, 1999, um, perhaps a little bit earlier. The first attack was actually, um, and it's, was an attack on uh, somebody who was doing research on AIDS, um, wanted Mm. people to fill out a questionnaire and basically um, hacked these people's computers, encrypted their files unless they, you know, paid some money and filled out this questionnaire. So um, the notion of ransomware, the notion of locking down someone's computer to get payment has been around for a long time. We've seen it in a lot of different iterations over the years. um, But 
I want people to understand that it's not new, right? Um, and so, and that's important to understand because it's evolved over time. We can maybe talk a little bit about why, you know, why it's kind of has a changing face uh, mm-hmm. more, more recently, which I think we should. Yes. Um, but, you know, um, ransomware I- itself um, really, uh, you know, in the wanna cry situation um, has exploited um, a vulnerability in older systems. And I think we can talk about, you know, why that is and how that happened. But that's really uh, what it is. So, I it, I mean, I want people to understand that this was not the most sophisticated cyber attack we've ever seen by any means. Hmm. Um, in fact, many elements of it were quite simple. And so, but because of the vulnerability that it took advantage of, it turned out to be widespread. I'm not 100% sure why it affected more businesses than individuals. Um, and so that's something, you know, that we're gonna have to wait and see if there was some motive uh, that was different behind um, that kind of targeting. But mm-hmm. in many ways, it wasn't targeted at all because it was so widespread in the way and the number of computers infected and the number of countries that were impacted. Yeah. My understanding is, and to throw out uh, just a couple jargony terms, is uh, that that, it, that it, uh, its method of spreading and this would be technically a worm, not a virus. A worm is something that kind of spreads itself. It doesn't need a human to click the wrong link or open the wrong file. Uh, basically, once you've once you've got it on somebody's system, it uses SMB to to, to transmit, which is a window a, a Windows kind of a businessy networking protocol. And I think that my understanding is that, is that that's how that's why I hit the business is so much because it, it, the business networks were using SMB, where most people at home don't use that. Uh, at least that's my understanding. Um, so that that's a little bit technical, but I, my, that's my understanding. That's why it why it hit the business system. But you kind of alluded to um, how the the ransomware has changed over time, and, and and I think one of the one of my guesses here, and I'll I'll, I'll I'd like your opinion on this, is that the the emergence of Bitcoin as a payment um, payment option has, has has maybe caused it to explode. But I'd love your opinion on that. What how, why has it changed? Why have we? It's been around so long. Why has it really been so prevalent recently? Well, cryptocurrencies and, you know, Bitcoin being the most, uh, you know, prominent, well-known of them all is one of the reasons, um, probably maybe the primary reason um, that it's uh, been um, spreading so much in the last couple of years. Because what happens in cryptocurrency, you know, uh, we can talk about this in some depth, too. You know, there's a there's a degree of anonymity, right, in the payment system. So, you know, before uh, you had forms of ransomware, there was a for a while there was a a, a version of ransomware it didn't encrypt your files, but it said, you know, there's child pornography on your computer. The FBI has mm-hmm. been alerted. You know, call this number and we'll, you know, right, we'll we'll clean up your computer for <laughs> you, right? Um, kind of thing. And people, but people were, you know, those kinds of uh, attacks. People were using, you know, traditional payment systems, right, like a credit card. Uh, so, you know, the credit card companies, the financial institutions, all, you know, have an interest in cleaning up uh, the, you know, the cybercrime ecosystem and, and you know, making um, the Internet safe and secure for everyone. You know, those those kinds of transactions, very easy to track, um, very easy to, you know, follow um, and find people who are, you know, committing those crimes. So um, they organized, you know, as soon as the financial industry organized around preventing those kinds of things, you know, people and then Bitcoin came along, people moved on to Bitcoin. Um, as a way of, you know, securing payments for these kinds of attacks. So Bitcoin, what, help us out a little bit. What, what is Bitcoin? What is a cyber currency? Why is it, and why is it untraceable? 
Well, you know, I'm not the technical, super duper technical expert on this, but I'll try and give an explanation that I think, you know, can make it easy to understand. So um, basically, these cryptocurrencies are, um, you know, they, they're considered a form of currency. And in fact, I don't know, you know, people might not be aware that they can actually use them in a lot of different places, right? There are you know, regular traditional businesses that take Bitcoin as payment, you can uh, make Bitcoin payments to in a lot of different ways. But basically, it's almost like a super sophisticated ledger system, right, where um, all the Bitcoins are registered, um, all the ones that are known to exist, and they get mined in this kind of way, they get created in a very interesting way as well. Mm -hmm. But um, and so they go into this register and you can um, buy them and trade them and use them uh, to uh, purchase things. So um, and the transactions are anonymous um, unless, of course, you know, you're in a transaction where, for example, you were to buy something from a, you know, a retailer and you wanted them to mail it to you. Obviously, you have to give them your name, your address and so they can ship you right. the item. But otherwise, it can be anonymous uh, to a very high degree. Um, although I do understand, actually, there's been some uh, press today about the Bitcoin and, and this particular ransomware, how some people think they'll never be able to use the Bitcoins they've collected because once they go to use it, they're going to be tracked down. Um, mm. So it sits in the ledger for them. But it's pretty easy to set up. Um, you get what's uh, they make you um, create what's called a wallet, which is basically an app. And then, you you know, you can be on your merry way um, buying and selling uh, Bitcoins. Yeah, I, I always kind of likened it to like digital cash, uh, it, it, except even cash has, I guess, has uh, tracking numbers on it. But yeah, it's it's so it allows you to buy these uh, these things without necessarily putting your name against something. The, the trick, of course, as you say, uh, is getting in and out of Bitcoin. At some point, you had to you had to convert something to Bitcoin, uh, and then at some point, you have to convert Bitcoin back to something else. Though so you're right. In fact, I think I heard somewhere in Canada somebody bought a house with Bitcoin. So, so you you can do you actually can use it as a as a digital currency in a lot of different uh, scenarios. One of the interesting things I heard about this though is that, that is that because they can track it, it, they can't track who owns the Bitcoin. But because it's like this national or global internet wide registry that kind of allows you to you know verify that these coins have value, that the, that you can see what transactions have been on there, and and they've investigated the code, and they've the, apparently they've only made about fifty thousand dollars to date. Yeah, I think I've heard. Yeah, you know, maybe uh, between fifty and seventy thousand at this point, which is not very much. Well, this is one of the clues, actually, um, to me in this WannaCry uh, ransomware attack. Is when you look at the kinds of ransomware attacks we've had in the last year, often they're very um, targeted toward, uh, say, a hospital, right? Mm -hmm. um, so they get into a hospital. They lock down the hospital. The hospital has to see patients. They can't see patients unless they can access the electronic records. And the amount they ask for is much, much more, right? They ask for fifteen or $17,000 or $25,000 in Bitcoin, right? Um, which for an institution um, which, you know, can't operate, um, that can be, you know, something they might consider paying. Not that I would recommend that necessarily. Right. Here, this broad sweeping... $300 per infected machine um, just seems like, you know, something out in the wild and not particularly targeted. Um, and it just makes you think about, was this meant to be a broad sweeping attack? Was it supposed to be a smaller attack that just got out of control because it was using this worm, you know, methodology for expansion? 
you know, it's just not clear here what the motive actually was. Yeah. Yeah, very, it's fascinating. One of the other fascinating aspects to this was this notion that it had a kill switch in it, which, uh, you know, these things, of course, will will evolve. And they already are evolving, but the initial one had some sort of a, a lookup built in the code where it went to look for this website. And for some reason, if the website was not there, it would propagate. So one of the security researchers stumbled on this and decided to, well, that, let me just register that website. And as soon as this website came up, it stopped it in its tracks. Uh, which was interesting. Um, so despite the fact that it spread very quickly, it didn't seem to be as impactful as it could have been. However, I know there's been variants that have been released since then that, that didn't have that kill switch. Uh, and I, and I, I don't I, I don't think they've spread as much. Maybe maybe because we had this sort of a wake-up call that people got uh, people got their systems patched. I'm not sure. Um, but let, let's just let's get practical here. For, um, what what is it we need to learn from this? This was a this certainly was a, a wake a wake up call. It, it's not that we didn't see this coming, but it finally did happen. Uh, so you know what kind of things should we be doing as a small business owner or as a as a regular home user to protect ourselves or mitigate damage perhaps of viruses like WannaCry? Yeah. So you know, for us, you know, those of us who do cybersecurity education awareness, this brings us back to the basic cyber hygiene. Uh, that everybody should be doing when they're running systems connected to the internet. Um, you know, you, you pointed this out earlier. Um, a lot of these infections, or I mean, this infection in particular, was on machines that either were running older versions of uh, Windows, um, perhaps unsupported versions of Windows, mm-hmm. uh, perhaps. And one of the things we think we see in uh, the widespread uh, uh, hit of this virus in places like China and some other places are pirated versions of windows mm. right um yeah, sure. which is certainly something that people have pointed out um is that when you have a machine that's connected to the internet the primary security protection that you have is preventing it from being infected right yeah. that's what a ransomware is it's just an infection right it's a virus it's a you know whatever you want to call it it's a you know your 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 machine is compromised with a piece of software that you didn't want on it, that you didn't ask to put on it, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, and that does bad things to your to your system or to the internet in general. Yeah. And so we always start here with keep a clean machine, right? Keep every machine that you have connected to the internet as free from infections as you can. And the number one piece of advice in, in this particular case, and I think generally for people across the, the internet, is to update your software. Yeah. Um, as you know, as soon as you can with the new software that becomes available. Now, you know, people who are running Windows 10 who accepted a patch that I think came out in late March um, didn't have weren't impacted by this. Right. Uh, by this uh, ransomware. Right. So, um, you know, people who are doing that have to understand that software patches are one of the best ways to prevent security incidents. Um, Software vulnerabilities get a, get identified all the time, sometimes by manufacturers themselves, often by what we call white hat hackers hmm. who are really security researchers who are out. Um, they actually get paid if they were to find a, a flaw in Windows. They can contact Microsoft and show them the flaw and Microsoft will pay them for that, um, for identifying that flaw, even though they don't work for Microsoft. I know people are aware of that. It's a very important part of the cybersecurity uh ecosystem that we try to create uh, all around the globe. So that that patching process, and by the way, this is not just your PC or your home computer or your laptop. 
This is also your phone. Really, really yes. critical. Um, really critical. So that's step one, right? Um, and I, I can tell you a little story from our history. So tell you how much the world has changed. Back when we were started in 2001, our primary advice for cybersecurity was update the software on your computer when you change the batteries in your smoke detector. <laughs> <laughs> so we've come quite a ways. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. Yeah, I, I, uh, for a class I was teaching, I did a little research on it because I was trying to make it clear that the that these devices we're carrying with us are really computers in your pocket. We don't think right. of them that way, but they really are. And and I, I did a little research on the, the capabilities of these devices, and it turns out that from what I could see, that iPhone 6S is 10 times more powerful than Deep Blue. And if you recall, Deep Blue is the computer that beat Kasparov in chess, you know, back in the day. So these really are amazing, amazingly powerful devices that are just kind of disguised as these sexy little slim things that we keep in our pockets. Yeah, I have no doubt that my phone could beat me at chess. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that speaks more about my phone or more about me, but... Um... But, you know, we, we the, the other thing that we really want people to and especially like in, in this situation with the WannaCry, there are two other really key pieces of advice. Well, two, two and a half, really. Um, one is you've got to be focused on strengthening the credentials to your accounts. Right. Um, one of the most one of the ways that people get compromised or that they end up compromising other people is because they have weak credentials. In most cases, that's passwords. But we really encourage people, like we like to say, to lock down their login, right? Mm -hmm. So ideally, that would be using something called either multi-factor or strong authentication, which is something um, in addition to a password and a logon to get into their account. Yep. Um, it's widely available. Um, all the major email providers, um, you know, Google, Yahoo, um, Outlook, all have some version of strong authentication that you can turn on. Um, many of the banking sites use some version of strong authentication. Most of the social networks, uh, Twitter, Facebook, have versions of strong authentication. Don't always use it the same way. Um, right. You know, in some cases, it could be a text to your phone, for example, after you put in your password and log on. Really, really critical and um, really critical that people start with their email account. They may not be aware, but um, their email account is really their crown jewel account because if your email gets hacked, um, where do you, you know, how do you reset your passwords? Yes. You go and they send you a password reset, yep. right, to your email. So really important. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I know another thing that uh, that uh, you guys recommend uh, heartily is backing up your files. Talk to me about uh, what what are the what are the techniques for backing up? I know that the the common ones would be like an external hard drive. That was something that was popular for a long time. But cloud services are now uh, probably I would arguably more popular. What what what's your feeling on those uh, as techniques? Well, certainly, you know, just in, so people make sure they understand that a backup is an electronic copy of your files, right? That's stored somewhere off your computer. Uh, and so, um, yeah, uh, the cloud has become extremely popular for backing up and it's really quite good for a couple of reasons. You know, we're talking about, um, ransomware right now. So all of a sudden my computer is infected and, oh my gosh, I can't use it anymore. If you have a good backup, you can wipe out your system, restore it and, you know, get all your files. I mean, you don't want to lose your, you know, your precious photos. You don't want to lose, you know, old copies of things or, you know, financial records. People, you know, people keep a lot of their digital lives on their computers or their phones, yes, right? Absolutely. So you really don't want to lose this stuff because it's hard to get it back. 
But cloud backup, you know, and so that's really storing these files somewhere else, you know, over the internet. And it's, in a, you know, and a cloud is just a, you know, a server farm out there somewhere, you know, who knows where, right? Um, uh, is really uh, many ways ideal. And, and that's not only because of, um, like we're saying, like ransomware where you could restore your files, but um, people often lose their data in other ways. Could be a flood, could yeah. be a fire, right? Um, a lot of most of the cloud systems allow some kind of remote access. So it's like, oh my gosh, there's that old file I wanted and I'm not at home and I don't have my computer in front of me. I can go get it. Some of them have um, are highly automated now that they're basically tracking uh, and making copies of files as you're changing them. So as you're working on a document, the you know the backup is nearly simultaneous to to what you're doing. Um, so there's you know there's a lot of ways that they add convenience, um, usability, functionality uh, in the cloud that that's really great. But you know cloud in and of itself you know isn't totally secure. Um, some of the same uh, principles apply. Like you wouldn't want to have a cloud account doing backup and have a weak password on that. Yeah. Right. That someone could hack. So, you know, it doesn't automatically safer. There are some issues around it that you have to, uh, you know, be aware of. Absolutely. And, uh, external, external drive backups where you buy a little, uh, usually a little USB hard drive and you stick it next to your computer. They have, they have their place. They, and both these systems have pros and cons. I usually recommend people do both if they can afford it. Um, but the, the downside, of course, to the, to, to the external hard drive is if it's, if it's connected to your computer and your computer has a virus and it's encrypting all the files that your computer can see, it can also see the files that are on that external drive and they could, they, they could be just as encrypted. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. And so you want to make sure if you are using some kind of external hard drive that the, you know, the moment that the backup is done, you just disconnect it and put it somewhere else in the old days, you know, when, uh, computers used tapes, you know, the method was, you made a backup on a tape drive. This was sort of the mini computer world. Then, you know, once a day, someone came and picked up those tapes in a bucket, you know, in a box, right? Yeah. And then they went off to some secure location somewhere. So that was the early version of the cloud. But, um, <laughs> uh, well, you know, but that, but that's the notion, right? It should yeah. be in a, in a location separate from you. So if you do do a backup on an external drive and you could put that drive, you know, in a different part of the house or maybe, you know, bring it to the office so yep. in case something happened at your home, um, and just store it there, you know, you would be better off. Yep, absolutely. All right. So, uh, what if you're, in, you did get infected by this or what if you're worried that you may have been infected by this? Is there, is there anything to be done at that point? It, it, if you don't have a backup and you're, you're questioning whether or not you may have gotten hit by this, what, is there anything that can be done at that point other than paying the ransom? Well, first of all, if you pay the ransom, there's no guarantee that you'll get your files back. So people should be aware of that. I mean, in many cases, they do give them back, but it's not a guarantee. Um, you know, these are cyber criminals we're talking about. Um, and, uh, you know, they can lose interest in collecting money or they could have to hightail it to a different location or, yeah. you know, there could be all kinds of things that, you know, uh, in their lifestyle or they could just, you know, collect your money and, and move on. There's no obligation. Obviously, it's not a guaranteed service. Um, there aren't, you know, too many things you can do. I mean, most people will end up having to uh, restore their system, right? Uh, basically wipe out their current system and restore it from scratch in order to get uh, their, their things back. So um, that's really kind of, I mean, they can try and bring it into, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, to maybe to a computer professional. Well, let me back up a second and say, that's for WannaCry, right? Mm -hmm. That's gonna be an issue right now. There have been many, many variants of ransomware 
some that have been around for quite a while, and they're still out there, as like we like to say, in the wild, floating around, mm. right? And from time to time, cyber criminals will pick up an old version and just create a new, you know, ransomware attack based on an old version of ransomware. Uh, the lazy cyber criminals. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> but there's a there's a website called noransom.org, okay. and it it's actually created by Europol. And uh, it's um, but it's all in English. So people it's in many languages, but it's in English. People can go there. If you get infected, you're not going to know necessarily which version of ransomware you have. The first thing you should do is go to noransomware.org. They actually have decryption keys for many, many types of uh, sorry ransomware. Um, so if you have an older version where uh, a security firm, there's some security firms that participate in that site have decrypted the, the ransomware, you can actually decrypt your files for free. Mm, okay. So, um, and it's, I, I'm surprised more people don't know about it. I should have mentioned it even earlier. Uh, it's uh, really a terrific site. And, um, you know, that's the, it's a great example of how law enforcement and industry uh, and uh, can collaborate uh, to make the world better for folks. So that's their mission. Um, so if you're luck out and have an older version, um, you might be able to clean up your machine from there. Yeah, that's fantastic advice. I definitely heard stories um, about uh, cyber criminals who, I mean, this is, after all, software. I'm a software engineer. The whole reason they were able to compromise your system is because some other software engineer made a mistake. They make mistakes, too. So, uh, in fact, there was a story I heard that was uh, Kaspersky and, and, and Russia were approached by some cyber criminals who actually screwed up <laughs> the ransomware and they couldn't give people their files back and they basically said uh help us fix our software so that at least we can give people their files back because persky said no but uh, yeah so yeah <laughs> these people don't always get it right and and i didn't realize there was one website to go to that's fantastic uh i'll definitely put a link to that in the show notes uh where you could go and uh see if you know maybe you get lucky maybe the maybe the one that hit you is it was one of these ones that was been already figured out yeah well i think you know what people have to understand is, and, and is that these the the cyber criminal ecosystem is is highly sophisticated right now, and it's um, cyber criminals can buy kits to conduct cyber attacks, right? So they can yeah. buy, you know, they don't have to write the ransomware themselves. They can buy the ransomware from somebody else, right, yeah. and create an attack. Um, and try and harvest as much money as they can, right? So that's why there's some of these, uh, you know, older versions, uh, you know, floating around. And by the way, that website is nomoreransom.org. I think I said noransom.org, but yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, it, it is. It's become a, a burgeoning business. I, I in the software industry, I've actually heard there are, you know, we talk about software as a service or platform as a service, these kind of the industry terms. But there's actually ransomware as a service. You can actually rent out ransomware from some of these guys if you know where to go on the web you can actually pay these guys money they'll take their cut but they'll set you up with some with your own custom ransomware it's it is it is crazy and it's it's amazing how much culture and business has evolved around this well it's, it goes even deeper than that in some of these cases uh, especially in the ransomware cases they will um you can basically get customer service <laughs> to help to help you pay the ransom Right. <laughs> They'll give you information about how to set up a Bitcoin account. Right. How to pay in Bitcoins. Right. Oh, I mean, that's fun. You know, you know, they'll 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 make it as easy as possible for you. <laughs> um, you know, so it's really um, and it's highly specialized. Right. I mean, there are people that write the software. There are people that deploy the tax or people that collect, you know, the funds. So um, 
it's it's not like a you know it, it's it's not like some people imagine you know a couple of 18 year olds uh, you know sitting in a in a garage somewhere it is a organized criminal enterprise um, with highly sophisticated software uh, engineers uh, and others um, you know developing and deploying these attacks yeah absolutely so one thing I'd like to dig into a little bit with you, and, and this may, uh, I'm sure this will be somewhat controversial, and a little bit gray, but who is to blame for this? And, and I think there's, I think we need to think about a few things. Obviously, the people who wrote the software and distributed it had the primary blame here, that whoever the hackers were or whatever that released this on the world, uh, obviously they have primary blame. But it seems at the very least that there are lessons maybe uh, to be learned or issues that need to be uh, addressed with some other parties in this. For example, um, Microsoft released patches for most of these vulnerabilities in, in March. Uh, so, you know, if you had an updated system or if you had a modern operating system, then, you know, then you would have been protected. You wouldn't have seen any issues here. And yet I also know that, you know, there's a lot of legacy systems for, you know, like MRI machines and, and desks, desktop systems that are used for check-in patients. I think that's what got hit in, in, in the UK. And these systems have are running like these really old software programs or need to control something that's very old, and you actually can't really update them. So, you know, does the, does the system owner in this case have some responsibility in, in, in these sorts of uh, spreading viruses? Yeah, it's a really, you know, it's a complicated question. I mean, maybe the answer is even has to be more complicated. But, you know, you have to put some perspective onto this, right? So we've been in the internet age, depends how you want to count it. I usually count it from the late 90s, right? You know, or 1996 and on when, which was a time when um, broadband became more ubiquitous, right? Before that, we were all dialing up pretty much. Um, and as we become more connected, um, the security risks increase and they continue to increase as we become more connected. Um, I, you know, legacy systems like these older systems that you're talking about in hospitals and some other places do, um, create a significant risk and organizations have to take a risk management approach to these systems. They have to understand that if you're running an older system with a, uh, either an operating system or software that can't be updated, um, that they're creating a risk for their organization and if it's a hospital for their patients, perhaps for their employees in certain kinds of ways. And so you have to, um, you can't just go on doing this thinking, oh, well, we just don't have the money to, you know, update it, right? You have to understand that it, as that happens, your risk is increasing. And I don't know how the hospitals have, have looked at that, if they've taken that risk management approach. Um, Certainly, if, you know, people had the patches available to them and they didn't do it, they're increasing their risk as well. Right. And I hope hopefully that's one of the lessons learned here um, with WannaCry, that it becomes a bit of a wake up call for folks that like, yeah, yeah, yeah we really do mean it when we say update your <laughs> software. You know, we're yeah. not just we're not just trying to make work for you. Um, right. You know, um, and so um, it's you know, I, I'm, I'm not big on the finger pointing. I mean. You know, people run legacy systems because, you know, you know, maybe the new investment is more money than they have. Right. I, I yes. don't know. I think, you know, people might be running all their desktops and businesses, you know, for the same reason. I mean, these, you know, not everybody can chase the upgrade cycle um, to have the latest and the greatest. But they do need to understand that it's not risk free. I mean, um, and so, you know, if people want to make informed choices about risk, that's better than. Um, going blindly into the night with risk. Agreed. 
And then, yeah, and that's kind of why I, I, you know, I because I I know that there are special circumstances out there, and it's not black and white. And I know there are there there are cases where it's not as simple as well. You just you should have just kept up to date. Um, and so, and that's kind of why I wanted to bring it up and kind of air these things out a little bit and get your opinion on these things. Well, well, well you know, the other part of this, I think, you know, sort of giving, you know, as, as you're sort of saying that is like, you know, you have to also think like, okay, so we have this outdated system, you know, that we use, I, was it MRIs or I don't know what, I can't remember what it's, but some sort of imaging system in NHS that got uh, compromised. I'm I mean, not sure. Yeah, I'm not. Is it their intake systems for sure? Because I know they had a backup right. there, but yet I know that they're recording some of the machines, like MRIs and things that use these. Uh, right. Uh, yeah. Well, so you know, then you have to say to yourself, okay, this is a really old system, but I need it. But does it have to be connected to the internet? Mm-hmm. Right. Because that's the issue, right? I mean, you know, if you're, I mean, you know, if you're not plugged into the internet, I mean, somebody could come along with a USB drive or something else to infect the machine, but you know, can it survive on its own? Um, or does it have, you know, to be connected to the internet? Unfortunately, like in the hospital setting, of course, a lot of these systems are interdependent, right? They require other right. systems, you know, to provide data for them to operate. But, um, you know, that would be a question for, you know, uh, a home user who loves their, you know, old computer and maybe uses it for some specific things. But, you know, you might want to consider whether it's always connected. Yeah, that's a that's a very good point. And uh, I know uh, the next person on my list of people that, that, that I've heard uh, leveling some blame would be, well, it's Microsoft. You know, Microsoft stopped supporting these things or uh, Microsoft should have seen this coming or they should have wrote per- perfect software, which, of, of course, I know is impossible. Um, I, I actually believe that Microsoft um, came out pretty well here. I mean, they, they managed to get these patches out early somehow. You know, some people say the NSA maybe tipped them off, and they actually did the unprecedented step of releasing patches for uh, previously unsupported systems. Uh, in this case. So I think, you know, I, I think what, what the point I like to make is that for, for people out there is it's, you know, don't jump to conclusions with some of this, the, the software vendors, because uh, really, it's it's not a matter of, you know, if there are bugs, it's when when we find bugs, how do they react to them? And I think in this particular case, Microsoft probably did about everything we, we, we could hope they could do. Um, and I know you do obviously do a lot of public private stuff as well. So I'm interested in your opinion on that. The other, the other aspect I'd like to throw out though, before you answer is what about just software liability? There's, there are really, you know, it's not like a physical product. So many of our, you know, physical products, if a car breaks down or if you buy some appliance or whatever that has a problem or, you know, that, that causes systemic harm, you know, we see lawsuits about that stuff every day. For whatever reason, software doesn't fit in that category. What, what are your opinions on, on that? What, what, what um, you know, what do the software vendors um, need to be doing here? Yeah. So let's start with the first part of that question, which is, you know, where does, does, does any of this uh, lie with Microsoft? I think, you know, the, the way this has worked, because it's on these older systems, I think Microsoft, you know, had given people plenty of notice. I don't remember how much time they gave. I mean, they gave multiple years of notice that they were no longer going to support XP. Yes. Right. Yeah. I mean, it was m- literally multiple years, yep. like, you know, four yep. years from now. I wasn't four. I think it was less than that. Maybe it was two. Whatever it was, you know, this system's no longer going to be supported. And people have to register that as increasing their risk. Right. Yes. It's not just like, oh, that's an inconvenience. Right. right. But they and then they actually, I think, extended the support of XP for a couple of years beyond when they really wanted to. Right. Because right. yes. they got like pushback on it. So, you know, I think 
um, that you know Microsoft in particular here can't speak for other other, and I don't speak for Microsoft obviously. You know, actually understands, tried to be responsive um, and give people the heads up, like, hey, this is coming. And you know, I don't think anybody wants to be, you know, and we don't certainly do this. Tell people, oh, go out and buy a new machine, but you know, at some point you have to, right? right. And if you want it, if you want to um, stay current, I do think that they were very responsive in the sense that you raised about, um, you know, the notion that you raised about. Um, you know, actually producing patches for these systems that they no longer support. Um, and, and people should know that you actually can buy support for XP. Right. I mean, they, they stop supporting it automatically. Like, you know, you have an operating system, you get that little notice, hey, there's an update. You can purchase support on XP if you yep. want it. So, you know, we don't know if people, you know, I don't know what the number of XP users that purchase that support are, but so it was available to purchase if you really wanted to stick with it. Um, and so um, I think they did, you know, um, what they could do. And I think, you know, this again should reflect to people that, um, you know, it, there's a basic concept. I don't know if you would agree with this, but, you know, security gets better as time goes on, as the technology improves and right. And so you've got to be part of the upward curve if you want to stay as secure as possible. The other part of this, the liability part, it's a fascinating question. Um, I haven't seen, you know, I'm sure there are some cases out there where people have sued for, you know, software not doing what they want to do. Um, I don't think we have the systems in place in the technology world like we do. You know, you raise the auto um, industry. It's a really great example of an extremely long history, right? A long history of regulation, right, mm -hmm. um, um, from the outside, and um, a kind of declared responsibility about um, who's liable for um, something that's faulty. Now, that system, as complex and as long-running as it's been, you know, it takes a long time before something is declared, you know, the kind of thing that um, leads to a recall, right? Um, there's often lots of fights about, you know, is it really faulty? You know, right? Yeah. Those kinds of things. There could be some civil cases, and then finally they say, "Yeah, there's a problem with the brake system. We're going to recall every, you know, 1985 Acme, you know, four door, um, and we're going to fix it." So it's not, you know, it it may not move at the kind of light speed that you need with software either. So I'm not sure that's the perfect system. But I think we'll we we talk about this a lot in in cybersecurity from our perspective. The way the internet has grown, it's grown so quickly that we haven't actually kept up our institutionalized way of dealing with things. I mean, there doesn't seem to be a system for, you know, a product recall, right, on the internet in the same way that there is, you know, for kids' toys or cars, right? right? Should there be? I don't know. But we've built systems to address these things as a society. Um, and then, of course, there's always the civil courts, right? Someone can sue someone, say that they were negligent, and if that negligence was proved, then everybody else who comes behind them has to solve that problem too. Right. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's it's definitely a thorny issue. And I appreciate getting your your opinion on that. The uh, yeah, I, I'm with you. I, I don't know what the answer is. I, but I also know that the technology is moving so quickly that particularly when you when you're talking software where there's no manufacturing process, there's no turnaround time. It's as soon as somebody thinks about it, they can code it and ship it. It's, you know, it our our institutions are just not you know, built to respond to things that change that rapidly. And so, you know, personally, I think that we need to be doing, you know, we need to figure out something we could do proactively instead of reactively, because it, the reaction, the reactive uh, response is just, it's, it's not being sufficient. 
Well, you know, security by design is a really important concept, and you kind of touched on that a little bit. And it's not, uh, it's not as widespread as it should be. You're right. You know, um, and 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 it's gotten easier to create software, right? So, um, and more people could do it. And you know, um, you know, there are uh, 12 year olds at my son's, you know, uh, middle school who are writing apps. I mean, you know, yep. right. Yep. And so, um, you know, the, the, which is good, right? So the ability to create has been pushed down the ecosystem. Um, but security is often not first of mind. And when you have an innovation culture first to market, you know, grow your user base, um, you know, those kinds of things, uh, you know, on slim budgets with not a lot of, you know, R&D money or not enough capital investment and security can fall by the wayside and, and it shouldn't. Yep. Uh, I've got plenty more things I'd love to ask you about. We could talk about how much uh, blame the NSA has involved. I know Microsoft, uh, Brad Smith came out and kind of basically said the NSA shouldn't have been doing what they did and, and that we could probably spend an entire hour on alone. Uh, but let's let's jump to some uh, a little more practical things. So we've already talked about a few things that people can do. Uh, to protect themselves uh, in this particular case. Anything else that off the top of your head you can think of that, that, that people need to take away from this or maybe uh, from a small business perspective if that's different from your home user? Um, any other resources you might be able to rattle off that people might want to look into? Yeah, so a couple of quick things. One is, you know, we talked about uh, backup and locking down your login and keeping a clean machine. But in systems that don't, um, that, that you can't have those kinds, you know, you can't have like a multi-factor solution, You've got to make a what I say make a better password, and and the reason I say that is, if you're out there, uh, you know if your passwords aren't good enough. You know if your passwords one two three four five six seven eight. You know <laughs> if your password. You know it. So we don't have to tell you that you need to have a long, strong, and unique password because you know that. So I'm just telling you if it, you are, and I'm not asking people to raise their hands and admit it, but I know <laughs> that many of them are out there. Make yes. a better password, right? And yes. don't reuse them. This is you know. It's totally in the user's control, um, and it, they can use a password manager if they want. That's yes. fine. Many of those are quite sufficient, but you've got to protect your credentials. So make better passwords where you can. Um, so that would be um, you know, something um, to do. If you're a small business, um, I really highly recommend um, that you um, get out and take a look at the NIST cybersecurity framework. NIST is the National Institute of Standards yes. and Technology. They've created a very simple five-step approach to making your business more secure. It's a really easy way to make your, um, you know, it's not technical, although some of it sounds technical, but it's not technical. It really helps businesses focus on what are their core digital assets, how they're protecting them, how they would understand if there was a problem, and then the response and recovery process should something go wrong. It's really phenomenal. It's been a sea change um, in the way businesses, and, it, and actually this little framework applies from the smallest mom-and-pop shop you have all the way up you know, to the electric grid. You, they, you, we can all use the same framework and talk the same language, so that's really important. For businesses, I also recommend they take a look at the Federal Trade Commission Start with Security. Um, they, the Federal Trade Commission, which is an enforcement organization, so that should perk people's uh, ears <laughs> up a little bit, um, went back and looked at some of the cases they brought about data security and uh, turned that into um, a lessons learned document with 10 things they've learned about um, where businesses have had problems. Patching would be, would, I'm sure, is uh, very prominent on that list. So credentials, uh, you know, 
who can access what parts of what networks, you know, privilege access, those kinds of things. So, you know, lessons learned from the courtroom are always good. And then the Department of Homeland Security, I'm just on the small business thing for a second. The Department of Homeland Security has what they call their C-cubed program, okay. which is really their tasking of helping businesses implement the NIST cybersecurity framework. So they're more on the implementation side of that framework. Um, all great resources. The point being here that there are a lot of resources. Um, people don't have to do this on their own. There's a lot of good stuff out there um, that people can take advantage of. Well, that's fantastic. And I will be sure that I uh, add links to the website uh, when, when the show comes out so people can go straight there and get all those links. Uh, I really want to thank you, uh, Michael, for talking to us today. And we've actually got a bonus. We're going to bring him back again next week for a, for a second segment. We're going to talk about uh, we've got summer travel coming up, and we're going to talk about some great uh, travel-oriented cybersecurity tips, and most people don't really think of them in, in terms of being different, but there's actually some very interesting aspects that we're going to bring back next week. Um, so, Michael, thank you very much. That was great information, and I will talk to you again next week. Well, thanks for having me in, and I'll look forward to talking to you again. Great. Thanks. And that's going to wrap up another edition of Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I will have a couple of user questions for you next week, so stay tuned on those. And if you have any more questions to send me, please send them at Carrie Parker at americaoutloud.com. That's C-A-R-E-Y, Parker. Uh, you can find that information as long as, as along with my Twitter information and information on my book and my blog and my newsletter and all that great stuff on the website. I also want to thank Michael Kaiser once again for coming and talking to us. And again, he will be with us next week with some wonderful tips on how to protect yourself while you're traveling this summer. And other than that, I think that's going to do it this week. So as always, folks, stay safe and don't get caught with your drawbridge. Day. See you next week. Thank you.